Welcome to Bootlegged Innovations with your host, John Schultz. Each week, we show you how to make your business enterprise more efficient with proven techniques that will help you spend less, break less, and make more. Now, here is John Schultz. Welcome to episode number three of Bootlegged Innovations. Uh, the title of the show, we're going to be talking a little bit more on the change management side of, of the house today, this week. Uh, the title of the show is Bridging the Gap, Why Digital Transformations Fail. And we actually have the author of that very book as one of our, uh, as one of our uh, guests on the show this week. And just remember that uh, at Bootleg Innovations, we really focus on the mission statement of bridging the gap between the needs of the business and the ability to, of the workforce to execute in a secure and resilient environment. So let's get started. Uh, first of all, this is week nine of home confinement for me, as I affectionately like to refer to it as getting ready to start week 10. Uh, and uh, whereas most people I talk to have uh, been much more productive around their house, you know, painting things and completing all kinds of projects. Unfortunately, I'm just not really very well wired that way. Uh, so what have I got on my to done list for this last week? One is we're in the process of actually rolling out a human factors intelligence uh, solution out to a large food and beverage company that uh, is preparing themselves for post-COVID uh, uh, response. Uh, they're, they're seeing that the rules of, of site entry and managing in the world of social distancing, they believe, is going to be forever changed. And so they're having to do some interesting things like temperature screening of people coming in. And there's a lot of misinformation out in the marketplace where people don't understand infrared thermography and how it actually works. But then also equally as important is maintaining social distancing and sanitation requirements inside the actual plant. And those rules are starting to change. And we're rolling out a really interesting vision analytics uh, with AI, uh, human factors intelligence program that allows us to track those tasks uh, on the sanitation side and also maintain that the, uh, make sure that the pods actually main, of employees maintain so, safe social distancing during the course of the day. We also ran Weibel analysis across 42 pipelines this week, which was uh, pretty interesting results. And uh, hopefully in a future episode, I'll be able to uh, bring in some, uh, not only some Weibel analysis experts to talk about when Weibel is appropriate, but also hopefully talk to uh, bring in the pipeline client that actually will be able to, to, uh, to share with you uh, a little bit of what we found out from actually running process Weibel analysis. And this will tie into next week's show, which is called overall equipment effectiveness, necessary, but not sufficient. It's amazing. The lies that people tell themselves with their OEE data. Uh, we also began to scope out a four year rollout of an asset intelligence program with over 10,000 components in the metals industry that we're extremely excited about. Uh, I did actually drag a bunch of chain link fence to the back of the pro property with my Kubota. Uh, I finished off that bottle of High West whiskey that, uh, that I told you I, I tapped into uh, to last week. So that was another thing on my to-done list uh, for, the, for the week. Uh, and like I said, after nine weeks going on my 10th week at home, uh, one of my other guests, Russ Fidel, later in the show, Russ, I'm a little concerned. I think that when it comes to going back to getting travel, uh, going back to traveling, I could be a little rusty. And uh, we'll talk, have to talk about how rusty ties into uh, some, of, some of your background as well when we get into the show. Uh, one last story about me, and then we will get started with this week's show that I'm extremely excited about. 
is because uh, every week I try to share something with the audience that the uh, that most people don't know about me. And uh, my nickname in high school was Sarge. Uh, and the reason for that was back, and this is dating me a bit, but the other members of the of the of the uh, the other guests will understand this. Uh, back at, whenever I was a kid, Hogan's Hero was very very popular, and there was a infamous character on Hogan's Hero known as Sergeant Schultz. And Sergeant Schultz was known for going around saying, I know nothing. I see nothing. I hear nothing. And so somehow, some way during the course of my high school career, uh, Sarge became the, uh, the nickname that kind of stuck. And so uh, that's my fun factoid about uh, myself for this week. And now I'd like to actually introduce my, my three guests. Uh, and the show for this week. My first guest uh, is uh, Tony Sadana. And Tony is a former Procter & Gamble executive. He's the founder and CEO of a, a consulting company called Transformant. And he's the author of the book that we're actually featuring this way called Why Digital Transformations Fail. And as soon and a little later in the show, we'll actually be able to talk to Tony a little bit about his uh, background as a swimming enthusiast as well. <laughs> uh, so, Tony, uh, with that introduction, could you please introduce yourself and uh, your company, Transform It, to the audience? Absolutely. Well, well thank you very much, Sarge. Oh, I mean, uh, John. Um, <laughs> very nice to be here. Um, so, um, you're right. I uh, spent 27 years with uh, Procter & Gamble. I was vice president there um, in uh, IT and uh, global shared services, which um, at, at P&G is um, very large and uh, complex. It's about $2 billion uh, annual spend. And uh, I had the opportunity of growing up, uh, so to speak, with the IT and shared services industry, everything from uh, having uh, started up the first ever shared services center in the Philippines in 1993, uh, leading uh, a large wave of outsourcing uh, right here in the US. Uh, I was program leader for a $10 billion uh, outsourcing deal to HP and, and uh, IBM and Jones Lang LaSalle in 2003. And then some acquisitions and divestitures when I was interim CIO of the Gillette company when we acquired them. And then ran operations for about you know, 10, 12 years before uh, getting into my real passion, which is uh, driving major change and digital transformations, uh, which is what brings us here today. Um, Transformant is a first of a kind um, digital transformation change management consultancy. I, I work uh, mostly with Fortune 100, uh, maybe about 20 of the uh, top 100 companies, boards and CEOs on uh, how to uh, make sure that their digital transformations don't fail. Fantastic, Tony. That's uh, that's that's great. And by the way, to the guests, occasionally you may hear a funny sound in the background. Uh, as I've pointed out in, in previous episodes, matter of fact, right there it is. I have uh, seven roosters on my property, and in particular, Ricky and Silver like to be guest stars on the show. Uh, I'm about ready to just go ahead and mic them up, and that way they can uh, just chime in at any time. Uh, my next guest is uh, Mike Aroni. And Mike is an executive consultant at Allied Reliability, a company near and dear to my heart. Uh, and uh, he had the, uh, the, uh, the dubious distinction for over the last decade of actually being my change management Sherpa. Uh, brought Mike on board the team 
uh, back in, I believe it was 2007, uh, to integrate change management into everything that we delivered uh, at Allied Reliability. And also because with every single employee that we added, it was the largest organization I had ever uh, attempted to lead. Uh, and I oftentimes felt like I was doing it by braille and I needed a coach. So I, uh, every, uh, every, it takes a village uh, was never more true than me as a leader. And uh, so Mike Aroni was, uh, was, was one of those, uh, one of those villagers that was uh, brought on board. So Mike, if you could please introduce yourself to the audience as well as uh, your role at Allied. Sure. Sure. Uh, yeah. Again, uh, Mike Aroni, and as John alluded to earlier, uh, I'm a retired F-14 uh, aviator from the United States Navy. Uh, so I did my uh, a stint at Top Gun, and five years later, the movie came out, and uh, that was the golden age of naval aviation. Everything was uh, really, really, uh, really good back in those days. I spent 20 years, four months, and six days in the U.S. Navy. But who's counting? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that was for uh, for uh, retirement uh, pay purposes. They roll up. They ever uh, uh, those four months and uh, six days were turns out were wasted effort. I didn't get paid for those. So uh, so anyway, it would have been uh, good to retire right on time. So for the last twenty four years, I've been doing um, asset reliability implementations using what I've learned in the Navy. Uh, uh, through with the master's degree in industrial psychology and as a, a, a senior leader and uh, with a lot of success as an executive consultant for Allied Reliability. I work with uh, senior leadership teams and um, uh, manufacturing uh, companies to help them understand the challenges, organizational and cultural, that they need to uh, face when they're trying to uh, improve their asset reliability posture uh, and understand that it's strategic uh, in nature. It's a business initiative that just happens to have a reliability component to it and, uh, and then help our, our teams then when we go into the site to execute and accelerate the uh, implementation to get the benefits as quickly as possible. Thanks, Mike. And my final guest for this week is uh, Russ Fidel. And Russ and his team uh, – are serial digital entrepreneurs, as I like to refer to them. They've had uh, several interesting runs. Uh, one of the first companies that uh, he, that a member of his team founded was Wonderware. They went. They then went on to uh, to found Lighthammer, which is now part of the uh, SAP MII stack. Uh, that uh, 95% of SAP clients globally that are running SAP are also running MII, and its roots are with Lighthammer. Uh, he then was the founder of ThingWorks, uh, which is now owned by PTC, consistently recognized as one of the leading digital transformation IIoT platforms in the market. And, to, and now he finds himself as the founder and CEO of a company that I'm extremely excited about and, and fortunate enough to, uh, to work with on a daily basis, and that's Augmenteer. And so, Russ, could you please introduce uh, yourself and a little bit about your transformative AI-based uh, enabled frontline worker uh, offering, uh, Augmenteer. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, yeah, appreciate the introduction. I kind of think of myself as an inadvertent entrepreneur. I worked out of college as a mechanical engineer for a controls company, and fortunately, it was the worst-run company in the world. It was so badly run, I had to leave and start my own business back in 1989. Uh, 
So, you know, being an entrepreneur really is just putting one foot in front of the other. And I've had a pretty good journey. This is my fifth successful company, uh, Augmenteer. We entered into the space, the founders and I, um, you know, recognizing that uh, technology had come to the point where we thought we could create a platform powered by artificial intelligence really to help support uh, and improve the productivity of frontline workers. Um, and if we look into the market today, and, and COVID-19 really is, has exposed this, that we really underserved frontline workers in, in the sense that we really haven't given them the exact tools that each one of them need to have to do their job safely, on quality, and uh, at maximum productivity. And so when we have a you know, we have skills gaps that are getting bigger. We have an unstable workforce because of quarantine in place. And we have, uh, you know, 40 to 50% of our knowledge workers in industry are retiring in the next five years. We have these uh, loss of tribal knowledge gaps. So we set out and said, you know, AI could help identify productivity opportunities in the noisy data that comes back from these frontline workers. Uh, it can help capture and convert tribal knowledge by participating in expert sessions. And it can also um, personalize the level of guidance and support that each worker needs, uh, matching you know support to proficiency. So younger, newer workers can get exactly what they need uh, to help them, and and you know more mature workers, more experienced workers can get much less and still be able to do their job right. So it's a, a great journey. We're two and a half years old, been in production, software and in manufacturing service use cases for over a year. Uh, working with companies of all sizes from 15 uh, assembly workers up to tens of thousands. So it's a great journey, and I'm happy to be uh, partnering with Bootleg uh, in some of these endeavors. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks, Russ. Uh, Tony, let's let's get the ball rolling and, uh, again, build a lot of this show around uh, your amazing book. Uh, if, if people in the audience have not uh, read it, I would highly recommend Why Digital Transformations Fail. Can we start off by defining the difference between digital transformation and digital disruption, which ironically, disruption was the title of my, of our, our show last week? Oh, awesome. Um, hey, um, actually, that's a, a fantastic question because um, this is a topic, digital transformation, where if you ask 100 people how they define disruption and transformation, you're likely to get, you know, 100 multiplied by two answers. Um, and, and that was literally what happened to me uh, about five years ago when I started this journey of essentially taking Procter & Gamble's um, what was considered to be best-in-class operation on, on global business services. And, 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 and I wanted to say, what's next after best-in-class? I wanted to disrupt it. I mean, you know, I, I, I talked to 100 different organizations externally and, and got many different answers. So eventually, I've come to realize that, um, you know, we have to kind of narrow down on some assumptions of what disruption and therefore transformation is. And so this is what, as you know, John, I lay out in my book, which is the only correct answer, at least that makes sense to me, is that we're in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution. So, you know, like the first three, which were driven by, you know, steam and electricity and the internet, the fourth one is going to be incredibly disruptive. Therefore, disruption 
is basically what's happening to successful organizations that were very successful in the third industrial revolution and have to change something uh, if they want to avoid obsolescence in the fourth, right? So that's how I define disruption, which is figure out a way to rewire your organization and rewire yourself from a skill sense standpoint to avoid uh, obsolescence. So that's what disruption is. And therefore, the best definition of transformation that I've kind of come across is essentially how do you do that rewiring? Um, so in other words, transformation is the antidote to disruption in the fourth industrial revolution. Oh, fantastic. Mike, that reminds me of whenever you and I started our early conversations back in 2005, where that ultimately led to you joining our team where we were talking about uh, how within the asset management, maintenance, and reliability space, organizations, when it came to change management, were either A, trying to completely, had their heads completely in the sand and were trying to pretend as if none of this soft skill stuff mattered, uh, that it was just an engineering problem that they were trying to solve. B, they viewed change management as something that was only for the leadership team and never actually got it down on the plant floor, uh, or C, uh, they made it its own work stream, not actually attached to the work that anyone was doing and had change management as yet another, ironically, uh, organizational silo. So when you hear the, de the definition of disruption and transformation, what, what are you seeing in this fourth industrial revolution uh, needs to change and how important is management is governance structure, change management, and your approach to messaging uh, within this fourth industrial revolution when people are hearing the words disruption and obsolescence and the number of Fortune 1000 clients that will actually not make it uh, out of this on the other side? Right. Well, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a very uh, a similar uh, uh, definition and, and approach that, that Tony presented is that the disruption is the business models. The business models have to change in order to be competitive or, or to take advantage of opportunities and, th and barriers to threats in the environment. Uh, the transformation, again, is the how do you do that. And the governance structure, of, you know, the textbook term is parallel organization, has to be created to, to bring the collective leadership group together with a common focus of what parts of the organization need to be adapted and changed and what type of culture or behavior this organization structure and systems need to drive for the uh, to achieve the future vision so you know it's not just about behavior it's about systems and structure because that's what drives behavior uh, 90 percent of an organization's constraints are created by management and those constraints are what what we need to take a look at and understand what has to be changed relaxed removed and replaced uh, in, in that regard. You know, we, we, uh, we, we're currently a command and control functional organization. That's not going to work. We've got to go to a team-based uh, organizational structure uh, with, a, with a good vision, clearly defined roles, and that's way different from the way most organizations are structured and managed and led today. Thanks, Mike. And what I also remember from all of uh, the great coaching you've provided me over the years is that uh, 
a whole lot of what we try to do on a daily basis really boils down to whether or not the organization has the organizational discipline to execute and can execute across those silos. And Tony, that leads me to another point in your book where you talk about how the fact that 70% uh, and some people will claim it's even above 80% of digital transformations actually fail. And as you start peeling that onion and you started to identify why they were failing, you say more often than not, it comes down to this lack of discipline and that ironically old school things like aviation quality checklist, which Mr. Roney also happens to know something about, um, is a, is a simple tool that can improve someone's, uh, an organization's ability to succeed. Would you care to expand upon that? Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, it is. It is a little ironic, um, uh, you know, that, that, that the core to avoiding this failure actually is good old fashioned discipline, um, because today when you talk about digital disruption and transformation, the first image that comes into most people's mind is artificial intelligence, cool new technology. So it's like, you know, go innovate. What are you talking about discipline? Um, and, and actually in reality, it's, it's, it's anything but that. So um, there are only two reasons why digital transformations fail in my mind. Um, firstly, uh, a, a lack of clarity, extreme precision on goal setting. And then the second is execution methodology. Um, so the first one of those I talked about uh, a few minutes ago when I said, you ask 100 people what they mean by digital transformation, you get 100 different answers. Um, and I'm not kidding. I mean, you know, when, when, when I have done that, I get a range of answers that go from, oh, don't worry about it. It's all hype. It's the new IT hype. You know, we used to have digital watches, for God's sake, in the 1970s, uh, you know, all the way to the other extreme, which is, you know, oh, it's all the Elon Musk stuff. You know, they're coming for us, right? And so so as, as a, you know, technologist or, you know, as a CEO, um, if, if basically you're not really clear of where in that spectrum you want your organization to go. Uh, to Mike's point about 90% of constraints in the organizations being placed by leaders, um, this is a prime example. So if you think as the leader that, you know, digital transformation is all about moving to the cloud or about doing cool experiments, innovation theater and Silicon Valley, that's exactly what you're going to get, right? So that's issue number one. Issue number two is execution. Understandably, digital transformation execution um, has, has essentially been a methodology that's come out of IT project management, uh, which is, you know, all of those different stage gate kind of things. Um, in reality, if you're rewiring the whole company, uh, just, you know, doing project management is not good enough. On the one side, before you actually get to the projects, you have to do the what I call the venture capitalist thing, which is you have to be looking at you know, 10 disruptive ideas and quickly killing nine of them. So what you're left with is an extremely successful but extremely disruptive idea. Uh, so that methodology is missing. And then the the um, other side is um, actually what, what Mike is all about, which is good old-fashioned organization change management. And so stringing those three together, you know, the, the, the portfolio management of disruption, uh, good old project management, and then organization change methodology, that execution uh, methodology has got to change. And so those are the two things that I try and put together into, you know, a checklist to at least give people some guidance on what they're missing. Fantastic. Uh, 
Russ, uh, whenever we speak of discipline, one of the things that the Augmenteer uh, tool does, and one of the areas that Tony points out in his book, is this, con- this concept of converting what is seemingly just a sea of manual effort into data. Can you talk a little bit about how Augmenteer helps, one, instill discipline, and then, two, how we can take all this manual effort that is often being done in the plants and actually convert it into real, actionable data that an AI engine can absorb and provide insight on? Yeah, it's a, it's a great concept. Um, so, sort of the, the rule of the land today is that people are doing uh, jobs in service and manufacturing and changeover. And pretty much all we really know is that they were asked to do a job. They were scheduled by a service planning system or a manufacturing system. It's when they started and kind of when they stopped. And so in between those, you know, two boundaries, we think of that as the dark side of the moon problem. You know, they, they start and they go around the back of the moon and all of a sudden they appear and we have no idea what happened. What we do know is that, you know, John did it in two hours and Jane did it in an hour and 44 minutes. We don't understand why they were different. And so with Augmenteer and, and you know, this concept of a, of a connected, an AI-based connected worker platform, we thought you know, the, the most important thing to do was to be able to stream high granularity data. So if, you, if you're doing an operation like a changeover and there are 25 specific steps in there, we want to be able to get very granular data on every step. And so when they interact with the system and they capture data, so we, A, we enforce uh, one thing, John, you know, you love to talk about is being able to enforce that a lockout's been done before they can get into the actual work procedure. And so with, with Augmenteer, you can require a verification before that you're blocked out, tag out, locked out, before you actually are given the, the permission and the instructions to do the work. So we stream the data back from all of frontline workers uh, in a high granularity may if they go and they look at a video because they're unsure of how to do something, if they call an expert because they need help, and we bring all that data into our AI engine, and it then cleanses out sort of outlier data, and it's, it makes the data into sort of a pristine set. And then out, out of that, we can start now saying, well, you know, which of the things that we do across our whole organization is the one we have the biggest monthly opportunity? So we can focus our improvement teams around the areas where we can get the best return. And then secondarily, we can understand a lot about our workforce. And so we can say, you know, uh, a big set of our workforce is having trouble with these type of operations. So maybe we'll do some targeted training on that, where this one person does everything well, but this one thing. And so what is it about that one thing? So we can now really, at a very granular level, understand uh, the opportunities across our whole workforce and the proficiencies and capabilities of every individual worker. So, so, Russ, before we leave this concept of discipline, uh, my understanding is you actually grew up as an Army brat and uh, your dad played football for West Point. Tell, share with our audience, share with our audience how your grandfather was convinced to allow his son to go to West Point and the concerns that he had and then also what it was like to be rusty for a summer. <laughs> okay. Well, so uh, – Sorry, I, I was an Army brat. My father was a West Pointer. Uh, my dad uh, passed away fairly young in life in his late 60s, and uh, he was very close to uh, you know, dying, and, and I was having a conversation with him, and he said, you know, he was a son of an Italian immigrant, and he goes, you know, my father didn't want me to go to West Point. I go, well, 
well, if your dad said you couldn't go, why, how did you end up going? He goes, oh, it was simple. The assistant coach from West Point spoke Italian. So he sent him down to my dad's house and he spent the entire day with my dad. And when he was done, he says, oh, you can, that's okay. You can go. I think it's okay now. I said, well, who was the assistant coach? He goes, it was Vince Lombardi. He went, dad, <laughs> you told me that, you know, just three or four years ago, I would have gone to Wisconsin. I would have told that story to a thousand people, you know, but, uh, but I was married and had two kids at the time. So, uh, and then I grew up, I was living in Germany. I, uh, I was a baseball kid and I, I was playing on the, the all-star team for my base. And we ended up uh, going to the European championships and my coach said he bought the you know jackets for the team and I get my jacket and it says rusty. My name was rusty. Like I had never been called rusty in my life, but he decided I was going to be rusty. So I was rusty for the summer, you know, and that was the last time it's ever been used until today's conversation. <laughs> and, and now it'll be used from this point on. <laughs> <laughs> That's your call sign. <laughs> That's right. It, it, my friends locally call me Castro, so that that is my new nickname. <laughs> so, uh, so Mike, one of the things that you've also taught me over the years is how the roads to success and failure, all roads to success and failure on large change initiatives, you seem to have an uncanny ability to be able to push it all back and, and, and explain how its underpinnings of success and failure are the governance structure. Uh, could you explain a little bit more about the importance of governance structure and why all roads of success and failure on large scale change initiatives, digital or not, tend to lead back to lead back to governance? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, now, now governance, which is uh, another term for the uh, the textbook term, is a par- creating a parallel organization, which has to be done because the organization design that's prevalent is uh, the the functional organization, command and control. So everybody has a piece of the enterprise that they're responsible for, and that creates un, um, unintended consequences. Function, fun, uh, functional affiliation. I work for General Mills, General Motors. It's General something. I'm a finance guy, or an, I'm, I'm an operator. I'm a, I'm a this. Where in the new organizational structure that we're moving to, we have to be focused on a common strategy and working together in a team-based environment. That type of structure cannot exist. It's the same thing when uh, when we're trying to implement some sort of transformational change. You've got to get those functional owners together and understanding what the challenges and risks are to the project. Number one is competing priorities is typically the number one risk because each function is trying to optimize its performance and they have an initiative that requires the organization to jump and move around. And the other aspect of that is you've got to have a site organizational structure and an executive uh, governance structure because what in general, 40% of the organization's constraints are controlled at the site level and 60% are at the corporate level. And uh, when you talk to the guys at the site, they'll say things, hey, don't those corporate guys talk to each other? Um, you know, I, what do you mean? They say, well, they're always giving us initiatives and we never have time to do our job, which is operate and maintain the plant. We're, we're responding to HR, we're responding to finance, we're responding to to engineering, to do all of these things. And then you ask them, well, what do you do? We don't do anything until somebody comes to visit. And then we pull the daily management boards out of the closet, dust the cobwebs off, update the metrics until they leave. And then the, the, the boards go right back into the, uh, into the closet. 
So by getting a governance structure purely dedicated to the transformation, we force them to execute. Every week they're getting reports on, hey, this is a, an initiative that's competing for resources for this objective. You have to make a decision on what, what's most important. And the number one thing is um, uh, every site I've worked in with the type of implementations we, we do with reactive uh, uh, organizations, they'll have 20, 30 different initiatives going on at the same time while they're trying to operate in the whirlwind of uh, getting product out the door and maintaining their assets. And we know that they can't do any more than four well and be successful. So working with the senior teams, we get them to commit at least for the next two years. These are the four initiatives that are closest to the uh, needle that we want to move that we're going to commit our resources for. And one of those initiatives is our asset reliability improvement initiatives that, that, uh, that we work on. And we keep that cadence going on a weekly basis where they're getting the feedback and information about what's going on. What's interesting is that through the course of our typical two-year transformation project, we create new mu leadership muscle memory. They start to behave and act in a different way just by focusing on what we can control, and that's our responsibility for successful execution of the project. And if they say, no, we're going to take a different path, then we can tell them what the consequences are going to be. And if I had $5 for every time I heard you told us what to expect, and it was a surprise anyway. What do we need to do to recover? Uh, I'd be completely retired right now on my boat going through the intracoastal waterway loops. <laughs> Mike, before we leave you, one of my favorite stories about you, and there are many, uh, but one of, my one of my favorite stories about you is the fact that, uh, and it kind of ties into Russ's story about his dad, uh, was the fact that uh, you actually played football for, uh, for Columbia. Uh, where you keep on telling me that 90% of the, student, the students are gifted and 10% are athletes and you played free safety. Uh, but then you also recently shared with me uh, a story about working on cars with your dad. And I just yeah. thought that was an amazing and with the whole concept of, uh, of remote support and AI engine, uh, you know, tell the audience the story that you shared with me about working on cars with your dad. Well, I, I had uh, the need for speed at an early age, and I was uh, racing. My dad joined the Sports Car Club of America, and I was racing uh, cars in the Sports Car Club of America in the New England circuit the, at the same time in the same circuit that Paul Newman had started to get into racing. And this was in the late 60s, early 70s, and I was actually racing my car before I had a driver's license. I was supposed to get my driver's license. I still had a learner's permit in about two months at an Austin Healey 3000 Mark III, and I blew the engine in it. And my dad took me to the garage, put a wrench in my hand, and uh, talked me through the rebuild. And of course, uh, being a 16-year-old, I rebuilt it fully race modified and had this really super hot Mark III, Austin Healey 3000, that would be very much more valuable today if I replaced it as stock instead of modified with the engine. So, <laughs> so Tony, going back to uh, some of your, your early on days with, uh, with digital and, uh, and P&G, one of the things that you tell a story about it was how over the course of a couple of months, you and, and your colleagues uh, brought in literally over 100 different 
organizations of different shapes and size and function. And uh, the con- one of the conclusions that you became convinced of after that is that either we're missing something or these guys have ever never, they've never really done true digital transformation. Uh, could you expand on that as well as you also alluded in your book around three major insights that that body of work uncovered? Yes. Um, so, um, you know, uh, when, when starting on this journey on, um, if, if, if you start to be best in class in a you know, given area and you, you're still trying to figure out what's next, it, it may seem like an ironic challenge, but, you know, this was really what we were struggling with about five years ago. And so we went out and talked to, as you correctly said, you know, 100 different organizations, including many consultancies. And the, the common denominator was, hey, don't throw the baby with the bathwater. You know, this, there's something that's working for you guys. And so you have to really, you know, stay with that strategy. You know, don't be crazy. Don't be stupid, right? Um, and that didn't really resonate with us because, um, you know, how even when others think you're really, really good at something, this happens to me, you know, occasionally, you know inside of yourself that, oh, come on, you know, this is this is BS. <laughs> you know, we can do a lot better, right? Um, and so we were kind of struggling with that. And so the idea of, you know, stay the course really didn't resonate. Yeah. And so... Um, there were a couple of things that came out of that conversation, though. The, the first was, look, um, you know, Clay Christensen, you know, the guy that, that essentially, uh, uh, the Harvard professor that, that wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, uh, which basically said that if you don't change, it's the very things that led to your current success that will eventually kill you. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Um, that, that, that really, you know, uh, came out uh, uh, as, as, as true for us because it, real, it made us realize that, hey, look, for companies, large companies, the nature of your competition is changing. So it's no longer another large company. It is the startup. Right. And so if you consider yourself to be best in class versus other large companies, then um, essentially you're falling into the Clay Christensen uh, trap. Right. The second thing that um, became very, very clear to us was that, you know, the the, the whole world uh, talks about how every strategy has got to have two elements. Element number one is, you know, run your operations brilliantly. And, uh, you know, element number two is you basically drive continuous improvement. Um, and um, the, the what we learned from looking at digitally native companies is that there is actually a third emerging part to the strategy. And that's really, you know, part of what, Mike, you're talking about, which is you have to have a separate governance structure. Um, that third element in our case um, essentially becomes and disrupt yourself. Um, so this is what Google does extremely well. They have this rule called 70-20-10, which is devote 70% of your capacity to running operations, 20% to you know, normal innovation, and then 10% like Google X to disrupting yourself. Now, those percentages don't need to be exactly those numbers, but you actually in today's world have to have that third leg, which 
which is disrupt yourself, change yourself. So that was the second thing that became obvious. And then the third thing that became obvious was that um, in order to do this, we would have to then um, essentially rely on an ecosystem because it doesn't matter in today's world. If you're the largest company in the world, if you have the biggest budget, so you have the most people, um, real innovation 99% of the time will come in from ideas from the outside. And so you really have to pull together a whole ecosystem and find a way to essentially grab a hold of those ideas and very quickly scale them. Uh, not just pilot test them, but then drive change management in the organization as well. And so those are some of the learnings that we um, we, we, we painfully found ourselves into uh, about five years ago. So, Tony, you know, whether it was after you had spoken with over 100 companies or whether it is in a large digital transformation where you just have all of this data, it's really easy to uh, have to, you know, you either have to sink or swim. One of your personal stories ties into sinking or swimming, and I would like you to share that with the audience. Yes. Um, so this was a very long time ago um, when I was growing up in India. We used to go to um, a, a beautiful place, uh, which is where my family originally comes from, a, a place called Goa, which used to be a, 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 a Portuguese uh, colony a long time ago. And um, in the summer, I mean, it, 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 it was the typical idyllic summers, right? You know, hanging around with your uh, cousins, you know, just doing stuff. And um, so one day, uh, my I was probably about eight or 10 years old. My cousins were a few years younger than me. They said, oh, you know, come on, you know, we, we have to teach you how to swim. And I said, okay, fine. Um, and so, but what I didn't realize that learning how to swim there was you basically went to an old abandoned well um, and you jumped in. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you tied a few things for buoyancy around you, but that was it. Um, and, and actually, um, that's, that's exactly how I learned swimming. And, you know, the, for a few days, I, I, I was able to build my confidence. Then one day, I basically took off all of the buoyancy stuff. And in the middle of the well, I panicked. And then I, you know, pulled on my cousin's um, leg, who was also in the well. And he thought I was horsing around, so he pushed me down. <laughs> and I thought that was going to be it. Um, but uh, somehow or the other, I guess, um, I, ha I, I had enough buoyancy to come, come out and back, you know, to see my cousin's panicked face like, oh, no, I've killed Tony. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's essentially the way I learned swimming. So I wouldn't recommend it as a, uh, as a parent these days, but, you know, that's what happened to me. Mike would say that before, before I met him, that's how I learned leadership. <laughs> so Russ, uh, another point that Mike is actually Mike has hit on, and also Tony hits on his book. Mike calls it muscle memory. Tony says that true transformation must include building capabilities to stay ahead of your competition long term. You mentioned that one of the challenges that workforce has is this concept of organizational brain drain. Can you talk talk and and the need to build the workforce of the future? Can you talk a little bit about how this AI and platform of Augmenteer can actually help organizations with brain drain, organizational brain drain, and building that workforce of the future? Uh, sure, you know, great, great question. Uh, a huge challenge. Brain drain. The loss of tribal knowledge is really also sort of. Uh, related to this, you know, the skills gap that we find in the workforce. So there's a couple areas that we, uh, with our platform, we focus on. 
One is the capture of the capturing of tribal knowledge. As, as you know, tribal knowledge is pretty hard to capture and convert because if you ask one of your more senior people, write down everything you know, they'll probably write down 50 things. But in the course of, of a month or a year, they might, they might help someone solve 100 problems that they didn't even think they knew. So it, it only comes out sort of when it's needed. And so what we've done with AI is we've, we've basically built a bot infrastructure, a very classic AI uh, uh, bot infrastructure, which sits alongside human experts, and not just experts, but senior techs working with junior techs. Uh, and it will start to accumulate and categorize the types of questions and responses that, that they get. And over time, it will start to learn the, the correct response. So it will take that tribal knowledge that's exchanged contemporaneously, and normally you just lost for the world, right? It just goes away, uh, and it will start to accumulate and then build up a knowledge base. So it becomes smarter and smarter over time. And so that's a long-term strategy that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not let these, these interactions, which contain valuable data, just disappear. Uh, the second thing we do is around, you know, we're frequently re replacing pretty static paper-based or paper-on-glass procedures. And if they're, if they're not, uh, if they're hard to understand or someone knows how to do it better, there's really no simple way to, to convert that back into making that process or procedure better. And, and with Augmenteer, uh, if you allow your you know, frontline workers to do so, they can add content and add, add uh, advice and additional instructions to a procedure that can be then accepted by the author you know, through some level of governance. But then over time, your procedures can start to embody the, the sort of the accumulated knowledge of, of your more experienced workers. So, Mike, in your world, this really boils down to one word in my mind, and that's sustainability. How do organizations build this mu new muscle memory, this sustainability uh, that, you, that, that you always talk about? Well, uh, uh, which is a great segue because Russ gave us a great example of what I would call a reinforcing system. Uh, uh, you, you know, I'm a Deming fundamentalist, and uh, the, the, the one uh, – soundbite that I always carry around with me is if you have a problem with performance, blame the system, not the people. So the people are responding to the way the system is currently configured. And if you want to get different responses and different results, we have to do a reconfiguration to drive the new behaviors that we're looking for. So if we want to capture tribal knowledge and get it into a more controlled format and decision-making, the example of Augmenteer would be a good reinforcing system. If I, if I want to empower people to make decisions, uh, then I have to have the, the systems in place that reinforce those behaviors. Uh, uh, so that's one of the biggest challenges that we, that we currently have is that, um, you know, change management is not just about changing behaviors. It's about changing systems that drive the behaviors. And the textbook term is called unfreezing. We unfreeze current constraints. We new, move behavior in a new direction. And then we freeze or we add new constraints to keep people moving in the direction that uh, we want. And it's a series of unfreezing and freezing as we adapt to changes in the, uh, in the environment. So we, we, we need, need to evaluate what those systems are, which goes back to the need for governance because everybody owns a different system or a part of different system that needs its levers moved, changed, relaxed, released. And we have to bring these folks together 
with a sponsor, an executive sponsor, and the rule of thumb is that person in the organization that controls all the resources necessary for successful change, um, uh, providing oversight of, of these types of things. Mike, I do believe that that whole freeze unfreeze was probably one of the most difficult lessons that you taught me for me to wrap my head around. Uh, but the fact that the organization actually needed settle time and to, where you needed to freeze the level of improvement, let the organization get used to the new normal, and then have the right measurements and the right levels of employee engagement to say, okay, we now have our coalition for change that is ready to take us to that next level. It's time to unfreeze. Exactly. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, it reminds me of the story I told in episode one on, you know, the definition of a C. Look again real quick because there's your second C. <laughs> it, it definitely ties in with the whole concept of, you know, don't stay frozen, but you've got to freeze for a period of time to make sure that the organization is ready to take that next journey and that you have that, uh, that, that coalition for change. Uh, very, very difficult lesson for me to learn. Uh, I'm much better at doing what I do now because you uh, taught me that along with a lot of other lessons. Tony, in your book, you speak to five stages of digital transformation. Could you share with the audience uh, the, what those five stages are? And you also, uh, you speak to in each one of the stages, it's also important that organizations understand what they are and what they are not doing and who they are and who they are not during those five uh, stages of, uh, of digital transformation. Yeah, so the, the five-stage uh, model really came about um, once I understood that, um, you know, I was not going to change the, the industry terminology on what digital transformation is. There's, you know, there's, there's enough vested interest that anybody that's selling a product or a service or a piece of software uh, understands that uh, digital transformation is a buzzword and therefore they have to recast their product as digital transformation. So that's why digital transformation, you know, depending on where you come from, could be everything from a new email system to a new cloud system to consultancy. And so understanding that I was not going to change that world, um, uh, the next best thing I could do is to essentially help decision makers understand exactly where in that spectrum of interpretations they they lied and where they wanted to be. And so that's when I came out with the five-stage model. So stage one, which is foundation, think about it as, you know, simple automation. So this is really where 90% of the times when, you know, uh, IT software or tool uh, vendors are trying to sell you something, whether it's artificial intelligence or cloud, what they're really doing is they're automating your work processes, and, and that's, that's foundation. In, in reality, what it is is it, it, it does improve efficiency, don't get me wrong. It does provide a foundation for digitization, but it's, it's really not, you know, uh, the systemic transformation that Mike talks about. Stage two, uh, which is what I call siloed in, in large organizations, is where, um, you know, a, somebody in the organization, which could be a, a country leader 
or a functional leader or the leader of some organization really understands that they're in the midst of an industrial revolution. And so they're going to have to not just get the next 10% change, but the next 10x change. And so they start to redefine or rewire themselves. Um, it is siloed. It is not enterprise-wide. Uh, but it's really important because those are the seeds of, um, of change in the whole company. Stage three is, you know, what I call partial um, uh, transformation. Um, so what that is, is when, just like what happened with General Electric under Jeff Emelt uh, several years ago, the company recognizes that it needs a strategy across the company. And so you do have a so-called digital strategy. Maybe you have a digital officer appointed. And so what you're starting to get is actual coordination across the enterprise on real transformation, 10x change. Um, but you haven't finished uh, the whole process. So, you know, you're in the midst of this, okay, I, I, I need to do this slightly differently and, and, and so on and so forth. Stage four is essentially when the organization transforms one time into a different model. So I'll give you guys an example. You know, in the early 2000s, we had a very disruptive technology called MapQuest, um, which replaced uh, physical maps. Uh, today, MapQuest is just about irrelevant. And the reason for that is really a lot of what Mike preaches, which is uh, real transformation comes in when once you transform not just the technology and the processes, but the organization. Uh, and that really is what takes me to stage five, which is essentially um, living DNA. When, you know, you have not just transformed your business model, but you've transformed the organization, you know, like Netflix does. This is the fourth time where they've disrupted themselves from, you know, mail and DVD, streaming media, original content, international. And so that's, that's really, you know, the five-stage model. And it's very important to, therefore, be very clear about what you want to do and when, which year. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, well, guys, that's going. this has been a great show. Uh, we are now in the wrap-up section of the show. Uh, I want to talk just briefly about next week's show, which title will be OEE, Necessary But Not Sufficient. And on there, we will have the author of uh, the book, Necessary But Not Sufficient, that she co-authored with Eli Goldratt uh, back in 2008. Carol Patak will be on our show. She's now the co-founder and CEO of Demand Driven Institute. We will also have... On our show, John Oskins, uh, former GE executive with Informants. And we will also have uh, Anna Ashkinova uh, from uh, Throughput. Uh, but Anna was previously a data scientist in both Walmart and Tesla, one of the few people I know that's actually done both tours of duty. So I'm really interested in, uh, in next week's topic. And between now and then, focus on moving your to-dos to, 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 uh, to duns. And uh, above all else, keep on bootlegging. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to Bootlegged Innovations. Be sure to join John Schultz again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again next week. 